0: Frank Hare gave me an awful lot of hassle on the commentary last year for talking about John McGinn's arse. But then I heard John McGinn recently talking about his arse and been quite delighted with the impact his arse can make. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app.
1: Now you're very welcome back. Sunday paper review, John Malloy with you this afternoon. I will start with the front page of the Sunday Independent here, which has a picture from Crow Park last night. Rhian O'Neill beating... Evan Comerford to score Armagh's first goal. They were 215 to 113 winners over Dublin in the opening uh, Division 1 match of the Alliance Football League. Beneath that, the headline is about Frank Lampard, who's going to be unveiled by Everton later on this afternoon as their new manager. And it's Lampard wants old pals on the Everton ticket, his old pals being Joe Edwards and Anthony Barry, who obviously we're very familiar with. And it seems Chelsea reports uh, Matt Law and Sam Wallace here Chelsea very likely to leave a decision over their futures to the individuals in question rather than trying to pressure them so Anthony Barry may be on the move to Everton Lampard they also report has decided not to work with Jody Morris this time around he was with them at Derby and Chelsea Sunday Times Dubs in the Dumps is their headline again. It's a picture from Crow Park last night. This time it's Sean Bugler struggling to stop Brian O'Neill of Armagh who was very much man of the moment last night. He was brilliant. Armagh stunned Crow Park with shock win in the league opener. And alongside that Reds as in Liverpool Reds closing on Diaz as Spurs chase Juventus Gio. So uh, Luis Diaz has begun his medical with Liverpool it seems the uh, Porto and Colombian winger is going to sign for 37 million sterling up front anyway might be another 12 million in add-ons across the course of that deal is the general reporting Uh, back page of the mail on Sunday then Lampard's United raid so Frank Lampard new Everton manager and it seems Donny van der Beek is who he wants as a January signing and Manchester United seemingly open to that as well so van der Beek may be on the move to Goodison and then the main picture on the back page of the Mail on Sunday is Kieran Kilkenny being tackled by two Armagh men. That was a feature of the game last night. Individual Dublin players being surrounded by Armagh jerseys. Stunning start to league as dubs are blitzed by Armagh. Again, 2.15 to Dublin's one thirteen. It was the scoreline last night. Back page of the uh, star, it's Donny van der Beek as the lead here. Don Deal, Lampard's after van der Beek as a first deal for New Toffees Regime. And then we go to the Sunday World. Deja Blue. So another defeat for Dublin. Disastrous is the word they go with here in the back page of the Sunday World. Disastrous league start for Desi's dubs as they're well beaten at Croker again. Uh, Sean McGoldrick here. Dublin suffered a shock reversal last night in the opening round of the Alliance League at Croke Park. And then we'll go to the Sunday Mirror. And it's a picture of uh, Liverpool's new signing. Uh, cop to bargain. Liverpool have got Lewis Diaz for half the price after sealing a stunning £50 million deal for the Colombian winger it seems. Initially uh, Porto were looking for more but uh, Liverpool have done good business is the uh, feeling. And then we have the Observer and they go with uh, Ash Barty ending Australia's 44 year wait for a home champion yesterday. Brilliant picture of her celebrations after winning in straight sets. As we speak by the way Nadal and Medvedev into the fifth set and it's Nadal uh, 3-2 and serving so break a serve for Nadal by the looks of things in the fifth set there and then finally Sun Sport Orchard in full bloom Croker shocker for sorry dubs and again it's a picture of Reno Neal finishing off his chance and beneath that head cases is the headline on the back page of the Sun this is a significant story I think fears as Sadio Mane is picked four days after concussion so Sadio Mane has been warned he's risking his health by playing today, Liverpool have raised concerns with Senegal after the star was declared fit for tonight's Africa Cup of Nations quarter-final just four days after being knocked unconscious and then collapsing on the pitch following a sickening clash of heads. And if this was in the Premier League, their concussion protocols would be such that he would not be allowed to play until tomorrow so if you missed the previous game Mane it was a sickening clash of heads and he looked to be unconscious and he got up and played on and he scored a goal but then he collapsed and he was taken off and now he's deemed fit to play four days on so head cases cop alert over star Liverpool not commenting publicly to the sun or elsewhere but you can imagine their thoughts I would suspect now very happy to say we are joined by Grania McIlwain broadcaster with TG Gagher or and Sky Sports hey Grania, great to have you on
2: Hi, Joel. Good to be here.
1: And Kieran Cunningham, chief sports writer with the Irish Daily Star. That Sadio Mane story catches the eye, Kieran.
0: It does. Yeah, but, um, I, I actually saw the, the clash of heads the other day. I, I watched a fair bit of that game, and I couldn't believe he was left on the pitch. You know that uh, he went on to score a goal, and they took him off. Then after you know, clearly even more unwell. But, you know, when you've heard so much about head injuries over the last few years, I still see situations like this. You know, you'd question how some teams still operate, you know, because he looked like a guy who should have been taken out straight away and shouldn't really be back on the pitch so quick.
1: Yeah, well, he's all set to play this evening, so we suspect Liverpool may have something to say about that in due course. Grainne, let's uh, dig into the papers. You've... Both picked out loads. We're not going to get to everything. Page two of the Sunday Times. Mick Foley here. Armagh win hints at a power shift. And that is the interesting question around Dublin right now. So Armagh were excellent for anyone who didn't see the game. A really promising performance from their point of view. But Dublin in many ways are the story, as people can appreciate. So uh, Mick Foley writes here. uh, Will last night be recalled as another fork in the road for both? Why not? And then from a Dublin perspective, he says, For now, last night will provoke for Dublin and th- another long night of the soul lost in the purgatory of what their team is becoming. The end result was their first defeat at Crow Park in the league for three years. A better second half performance wiped the blood off the scoreline. But the cracks visible last night were... or Sorry, excuse me. The cracks visible last year were all present again last night. And that was the big worry in many ways. And Mick Foley goes on to say, Their shooting was poor. Their shot selection was worse. They conceded freeze that put them in trouble. Their bench looked light and Dublin looked lost when they needed leaders. He does add the caveat that James McCarthy, Mick Fitzsimons and Conor Callan and a few others are set to return. But, Gráinne, uh his key point there is this was a continuation, I suppose, of some of the slippage in standards we saw last year. That's the worrying thing for Dublin.
2: I think so, but I, I think in a way, Joe, it's natural that that's going to happen. Like, you cannot replace the players that they have had. When you look at those epic finals that they had against Mayo over the years, and you had players like Bernard Brogan and Paul Flynn and Kevin McMahon and Michael Dyer McCauley, all of them like former players of the years, multiple all-stars coming in and saving it. Dermot Connolly as well, another player that would have come off the bench and, and did the business for them. Like, those players don't exist at this moment in time. And I think t- to expect them to continue to be that team that won six in a row, I-, I don't think that's fair on them or fair on the new players coming through either to expect that. So Dublin are definitely at a crossroads. There's definitely a period of change. And I think Desi has come out and said that afterwards as well, like there is a rebuild that needs to take place and um, will take place and could be quite painful. and. If you compare this team maybe to the great Kerry teams of of the 70s and the 80s, they went through a period of transition and a painful period of transition as well, Joe, in terms of finding new players. Because obviously when you have players of that caliber and I think maybe you mightn't admit it, but the same investment and maybe the same process of looking for players mightn't have been to the same extent that would have been expected and experienced previous to that. That definitely would have been a reason and carry that a lot of players that were good just didn't get the chance to get on the team and then fell out of love with the JR, just weren't involved. And then when we were looking for those players, Their particular investment hadn't been hadn't happened, so they didn't have those players to pick from. Now Dublin, you can't say that that's going to happen. They obviously have a a hugely successful system in getting players and bringing them through, but you know what we've seen from Dublin over the years they've been um, once in a generational type of players so I think it's inevitable we are going to see that declining and you know, the, people talk about Dublin, maybe, well, Dublin might not win another All-Ireland for another number of years. You know, they might not win it for another 10. Like, you just don't know. I mean, you have brilliant players there. But I think to just put all of that on one league game as well, you know, time will tell. I think a big test will be next weekend against Kerry, who are traditional rivals. that, that They never play particularly well in Kerry or win in Kerry. But I think it'll just be interesting to see the attitude. But I think Mick was right. Everything he said, just their decision-making, their... Their wides and um, their, their discipline, actually, I find really interesting as well. Like, you know, they conceded a lot of freeze, and I just thought you know, that's scoring opportunities. never, you know, they took shots, which one hand you can commend and say, great, they're going for shots. But another hand, when is the last time we've seen Dublin just taking shots without recycling the ball, looking with that player in the better position? But I want to talk about Armadio because I think they deserve massive credit and we've seen a ma- huge improvement in them as well. And Kieran McGeaney and his management team deserve massive kudos for what they have done. I mean, they look really fit. They look really lean. You could seriously see players like, like really lean had lost some weight as well. They just looked really strong and really fit for this time of the year I thought their game plan was excellent and their style of play was lovely to watch like it was just kicking game and they have a player of calibre of, of Ryan O'Neill who's just not we know we've talked about Ryan O'Neill over the past number of years but just a really fabulous display from him their subs came on and make a massive difference but I think Kieran McGeaney as well is very um, aware that it's the first league game too but it's, it's a massive kudos for them in Division 1 it's just going to be really difficult to stay in so it's a huge huge um, night for Armagh and again we'll see how they perform can they continue that consistency against Tyrone next again and just then for Dublin it's that leadership group and it's seeing how they will react Against Kerry next weekend.
1: Yeah, totally agree with all that. Mick Foley concludes by saying, for Dublin, their reaction against Kerry, with the hotels and guest houses of Tralee already booked up by the Dubs, like it was summer, could ripple throughout their entire season. Uh, Kieran, what do you take from last night? How much do you read into last night with a view to the season ahead for the Dubs?
0: Well, I'd read what I'd read into it is, is it's part of a pattern. You know, I, I think Dublin, this Dublin team, or the great Dublin team, came to a natural stop at the end of the five in a row. And that's why Jim Gavin walked away. You know, it was that did you know? Some of them have admitted it since in interviews. It took a huge amount out of them, which was understandable. And you look through the amount of All Ireland medals that have left that squad. even since last June, forty-seven All Ireland medals have been out of that squad. That's only, you know, eight or nine months, and it's hard to replace that uh, experience and that quality. And you know, when they announced the team sheet yesterday. And I thought, well, I think it was the Dublin team that started. And when I saw that team, I thought, that's a really beatable team. If you were not our mad rest, it wouldn't be intimidating. And even before Mayo beat Dublin last year, Dublin stumbled through Leinster. They hit no great heights. They looked more ordinary in Leinster than they had in 10 years. Uh, They were up and down in the league. And the previous year, even though Desi Barr wouldn't all earned in his first year, it was such a strange championship and it was a winter championship behind closed doors. And because it was a straight knockout, you had the shocks of Cabin and Tipperary, which were great. But they took out, that meant Dublin weren't going to come up against a Kerry or a Tyrone or Donegal. You know, so the, where, you know, it was an All-Ireland that kind of fell into their laps. It was actually the easiest All-Ireland that won of all the eight that they won over the last decade. So I think this decline has been there for a while. It does give the lie and it makes you question the whole notion of it's all been about money and structures and population. But they still have all of that. But the quality, you know, there was five or six players at least there last night that looked to me like standard intercounty. You know, they, you know, you get as, as good in Division 2 II or 3 teams. You know, still have a core of outstanding players. But if you look at the players that come in, Connell Callaghan is prime. Johnny Cooper, Mick Fitzsimons, James McCarthy. By the summer, two of them will be 32, one of them will be 33. three. will be a huge amount of mileage on the clock. You know, I think, I would be astonished if Dublin won the All Ireland. That's being honest. I think with the resources, and you will expect them to get players to come. I don't think the Leinster was long as they did before, when they had long gaps like sixteen years or twenty-three years. But I would, I think that the, the, the transition might take longer than expected. And the other thing you can't ignore is the impact of Jim Gavin as coaches. They were the best coach team I've ever seen. Like they were so calm under pressure, rarely making mistakes, always thinking the right options. Over the last while, they've been to get the wrong options all the time. And it's not even the Whites total. The Whites tally used to always be around four or five every game, game after game. This night it was three times that. Like, they've become so sloppy. Bad habits have crept in. And, you know, there was all this thing, the amount of current and experts, and you'll see a reaction from Dublin because of what happened to Mayo. But you can't really leave a reaction when a lot of the guys coming in are just trying to get that jersey and make an impact. Like, they, they can't think of a bigger picture in that will put down a marker and show Mayo was just a blip. They're trying to make their mark as intercounty players and show they should be on that team. So this could be a very difficult league because it's a very strong league. It's a very strong Division One, and I think the aura Dublin aura has at least been dented, and a lot of teams will feel they have a chance now. Maybe even in Leinster.
1: So, Gráinne, you're taking all that then as read. It does suggest that much of the media commentary about Dublin over the last couple of years was totally wrong. That it was uh, suggesting Dublin would win six, seven, eight All-Irelands out of every decade, that demographics had been harnessed and much of the country would never stand a chance again. It seems really like a lot of former Dublin players would say things like, look, you've got a, a once-off freak generation and you've probably got a generational manager as well. And A lot of us probably discounted that and said, no, 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 next manager in, next group players in, it's never going to stop. So it looks like it has stopped. It looks like the claims many former players made that this was just a freak generation and a freak period might well be proved correct.
2: I think so, Joe. Um, I mean, it's it's no one's given right that they're going to win in All Ireland. It's they're very hard earned, and I know there's nothing soft about winning All Ireland. And I totally agree with Kieran said about um, Dublin winning that six-one. Um, it was a very strange year and strange times, but it, it is whoever wins it. You know, they've won it a hard way. They've, they they deserve that title to get there. Um, they were once in generation type players and. Uh, you know, people would have said that about the Kerry team too, Joe, that this is it, they're going to continue on for him. But it comes to a natural end. Players come to a natural end. And even the players that are left from those great teams, like the like of Brian Fenton and Kieran Kilkenny, like the expectation on them to change games and Conor callan coming in, like they can't do that because they don't have that support either behind them. And we talk so much about the forwards in the midfield, like... People forget how defensive minded Dublin have been over those times that they've won, or the five, six years that they've won all irons as well. Like they have been excellent in defense. And last night they looked in total disarray. Like they just didn't seem to have that you know, just players that experience like Davey Byrne caught a few times, you know, just kind of just things that you wouldn't have expected them. So they're either as a lot of commenters say, they're either working on new things or they're just not at the pace. But I think over the league we'll see a lot from them. Mm. But no, I don't. I would agree with Kieran. I'm not sure that they'll win an All Ireland this year unless we see a massive, drastic improvement from them. But I think the expectation on the players that have a lot of mileage on the on the legs too, like being with that Dublin side over the last number of years, and the new players coming in who are, as Kieran rightly says, just trying to make a mark and get that Dublin jersey. And perhaps that that um, competition for places isn't what it was at either. You know, so they're they're. There are challenging times for Desi Farrell and Dublin at the moment. And it's challenging because that narrative that have been there over the past number of years, that they were just going to miraculously continue on winning all irons it, it doesn't work like that. And I think um, we'll see if Dublin can get another one out of it. But I like that's six in a row. I mean, I don't think we'll ever see that happening um, in the next 20, 25 years, in my lifetime anyway, of, of teams doing that. Like It's a phenomenal, phenomenal achievement. I think we should admire what they have achieved and trying to expect them to do that again. I don't think that's fair.
1: Okay. Uh, before uh, we've got two, three minutes here before news headlines, so I don't want to start anything uh, which will take us too long. Just uh, we might briefly, Kieran, mention Mick Foley's piece on page four of The Sunday Times. You both wanted to touch on this. GAA can't afford for proposed changes uh, to fail. You might just sum up what Mick's talking about here and why it grabbed your eye. Because uh,
0: yeah, the reason it caught my eye is because, uh, you know, he brings up the, the system around uh, the, the Tommy Murphy Cup before uh, the opposition that was there with, uh, to it with a lot of counties. And I think, you know, he's highlighting here something that a lot of people don't realise, which is what is at stake for the Division 2 counties, especially. And Division 2 is a hugely competitive division. You look at the last uh, fully completed normal league before COVID, it was 2019. Go down to the last uh, round of games in that league, four teams were still in the hunt for promotion. One had already been relegated and another four were in danger relegation. So there was something there. You know, everything was still to play for going down to the last day for all the teams. So this time around, the bottom two teams were going to the Tallinn Cup. And if you look at the teams that are in Division Two, like Cork and Down are there. Cork won the All-Ireland in 2010, beaten down in the final. You know, uh, uh, Galway are there. You know, Meath are there. There's so many strong counties, which are seen as traditional strong counties, that are there that could drop into the Tallinn Cup. And they're into a league with massive stakes and just, uh, you know, mixed pieces just with this league, between league and championship, that's been created and it's very important. It just raises the stakes all around.
1: Yeah, in many ways, it does make Division Two the most interesting division of the lot. We're going to take a very short break for news headlines. We've loads to get through in rugby. Neil Francis interviewed in the Sunday Times by David Walsh. Tyke Furlong interview as well. Lots of Six Nations preview. There's plenty more GAA as well. We have Jonathan Northcroft on Frank Lampard. Dennis Walsh on uh, some of the hypocrisy around our uh, talk of Saudi sports washing and the golfers. Declan McBennett, Orti, had a sport, interviewed as well. And a few other pieces besides. We'll take a short break. I should let you know, by the way, Rafa Nadal should be serving for the Australian Open in about five minutes. Medvedev is serving at 5-3 down. Assuming he takes that, Nadal will be serving for the championship, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, not least when you consider he was two sets to love down in this match and uh, he's 35 years of age now. So on the cusp of winning Grand Slam title number 21. We're back with Grania McIlwain and Kieran Cunningham in just a moment. Well, the tennis is quite extraordinary. Rafael Nadal was serving for the championship in Melbourne and Medvedev broke serve. So it's now five games apiece in the fifth set in the men's final. So Nadal may come to rue that chance. He was serving at 5-4 and Medvedev incredibly broke serve Nadal's come from two sets down to bring this to five sets by the way so it's been a really extraordinary uh, men's final this morning or this evening in Melbourne we're chatting through the Sunday papers Kieran Cunningham of the Star Chief Sports Writer with the Star and Grainne McIlwain broadcaster with RTÉ TG Gar, Sky Sports with us we'll come back to the GA. we've started uh, down the GA route talking about the Dubs let's uh, jump around a little bit because there are lots of pieces we want to get to Six Nations starts next week. Kieran Neil Francis unveiled by the Sunday Times as their columnist. Uh, He was obviously with the Sunday Independent for a long time. He's been writing for 30 odd years now and Players Diary, uh, even towards the end of his career with Paul Kimmage. So page 10 and 11 and into page 12 here is all Neil Francis because he also has his uh, first column for the Sunday Times where he's talking about Ireland's passing game and the All Blacks and hoping it continues Uh, the interview with David Walsh. What grabs you here?
0: Uh, Well, it's not so much the substance of the interview. Like, uh, I don't think there's huge amounts. Um, Like, even some of the stories that um, Neil Francis tells David Walsh, you know, like one about him meeting Joel Schmidt in Goldstein one day, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, when a group of workers in high-vis jackets came in, and he says... uh, uh, one of them stood up and said, you know, before we go upstairs, it's important we recognise what this man has has done for Irish rugby. And Joe was getting a bit embarrassed and Neil Francis said, uh, thanks lads for this, but I think Joe here deserves a bit of credit as well. So no, I've heard, uh, I've read uh, Neil write about this before and a few of these other stories before. But what, what interests me is Neil Francis is back because it's six months like they get to the, the, this at the very end of the article, it was six months since he was let go by the Sunday independent, after remarks he made about uh, Marcus Smith of the Harlequ- of Harlequins in England fly half, you know, or, uh, on the podcast about the lions, when he described him as a, having a noompa-loompa tan. And this became a huge, um, a huge controversy, and eventually the Indo pulled the plug, the, the issue to state so they were cutting him, cutting him adrift and, I was wondering would he crop up somewhere else, you know, because I do believe it's important people have second chances. Like it's very much part of the human condition to mess up. We've all messed up, but, you know, you do benefit from being given another go. But Neil Francis, you know, he's, he's tried the dangerous line at different times over the years. Like even on this paper re- review a few years ago, he said some things that got him in hot water. But six, just six months in, he's back, you know, with, with another provenance, uh, in another major newspaper with a column of prominence, and it, it just made me wonder. Like he, David Walsh, I think is quite friendly with Neil Francis. So is Paul Kimmage. Like Paul Kimmage wrote a few weeks ago or a few months ago about how there's a great book in Neil Francis, and it does seem to be as if there's been an attempt to rehabilitate his reputation very quickly. And that that, that 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 isn't always there for everyone. Like across the water, you know, like say people like Ron Atkinson said things, and you know, effectively the career was finished by it. There's no harm that he's got back in, but it makes me wonder because there's a line in here about Vincent Brown saying, Get the lunatic number five to do a column. He's your man. You know, you want a maverick. And I think there's a lot to be said for using mavericks as columnists. Like, you know, in their own paper, like with Lexi Gerald, Nan, Eamon McGee, Eamon Don they would be very much mavericks and they look at the world a different way. But it just makes me think. Uh, You know, he's been doing this since 1991. He's a very gifted writer. Like, he writes his own columns. He's twice won awards for his his columns. Like, I remember his column on Willie Willie Duggan from a couple of years ago. And a lot of people, a lot of columns are forgettable. But I remember that one vividly because it was superb. But I just wonder, where's the new Neil Francis? Like, why hasn't another, why why are they going for somebody who's been writing for 30 years? You know, I would have thought somebody new would have emerged by now. And also in the interview, I think it would be better if it was a more confrontational interview, than if it wasn't somebody like David Walsh, who possibly is friendly with Neil Francis. I think he could have been challenged more on things he said over the years. On what he said last year, I think he could have pushed a bit deeper and say, you know, why, did he, why does he feel the they just say this stuff and be what might, people might call edgy or people might call stupid?
1: It's towards the end of the piece where that whole area comes up. So he mentions 09 when Dave Walsh writes that uh, he had taken to referring to the team as lady Boys' and inside the changing room that stung like no other insult. Neil Francis says here, if I was able to go back, I would never use the term. But I first coined it about the Leinster team. I played on so much talent. But when the heat came on, we turned off and that kept happening. After Leinster won the 0-9 Cup final, the last line of Francis Peace on the game said, Lady boys, no more. Uh, six months ago, he lost a job at the Sunday Independent after making an inappropriate and offensive comment about the Harlequins in England. Fly half Marcus Smith in a podcast. So what Neil Francis says here to Dave Walsh, what I said was wrong and I did disparage Marcus Smith and I very much regret what I said. It was something I would never have written. He says that he called the uh, media guy with British and Irish lines as Marcus was with the lines at the time. I rang three or four times, left a message saying I would like to talk directly to Marcus as I wanted to apologise. Tim, the uh, Tim Percival, the media guy, never got back uh, to me. And David Walsh then goes on to say that the time in exile brought uh, constant reminders of what sports writing means to him. Uh, more than he imagined, I realised how much I wanted to do it. Writing a column imposes a discipline that forced you to think things through. Before I started writing, it felt like my life was a series of reactions. It's a pleasure to sit down, and engage in contemplative thought. I suppose Kiran, as they announce their new columnist, they understandably may not want to relitigate the whole situation in massive depth and so there was probably a feeling that they had to address it without teasing it out in all its aspects that would be i feel or i suspect how they felt would be the best way to uh deal with the situation
0: uh, that may well be the case joe it wouldn't surprise me at all you know i do think if he really was you know he could have got marcus smith you know like uh, marcus smith wasn't on on lions duty for the last six months you know, he was out there for a few weeks, you know, so he said he would try to go through Tim Percival of the lines at the time. And surely if he really wanted to, you know, push and make the show's contrition to Marcus Smith, he could have contacted him since then, you know. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm very conflicted over this. Like, I, I think there's been a bit of an old pals act going on here, and it's just sorting out of body. And he's a guy that uh, has a track record that is patchy. He's a brilliant writer. But he said a lot of things that other people wouldn't get away with, and he constantly got away with them. And if you know, even even with that podcast last year, we it wasn't until last year it wasn't until it was picked up in England. You know, the podcast was a week old, and you know the Indo didn't move on him here. It was it wasn't until it became a controversy in the UK that they made a move. You know, so people facilitated him crossing the line for a long time.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know the ins and outs of the podcast situation. Maybe it didn't come to widespread attention until it was highlighted in the UK are certainly the the powers that be higher up. I don't know the ins and outs of that situation. We can only speculate there. So that's not a wise thing to do um, on on the old pals act. I think um, in fairness, in fairness, there probably is a good book in Neil Francis all the same, so it's not an outrageous thing to say on Paul Kimmage's part. And David Walsh does raise the issue here and discuss it with them. I understand your point that it could have been maybe more confrontational, might have been a benefit to to both. But I suppose um, journalists make their choices in fairness. You know, David Walsh isn't here to defend his uh, treatment of the conversation. And uh, Gráinne, what strikes me, like the reason uh, Neil Francis has been hired again, as Kieran says, gifted writer and people still want to read him after all these years. And one of the reasons they want to read him is he does say things which get him into hot water. And so there's always that tricky line with any of the controversial writers or pundits that how do you handle it when lines are crossed? And that's part of the appeal and part of the reason they're employed and to rehabilitate or to cast aside at uh, signs of trouble is the never ending dilemma, I suppose.
2: Yeah, it is, Joe. Um, I mean, he's a type of character, you either like him or you loathe him. I I don't I haven't really met anyone that's kind of gone he's grand or he's in between. I think you either like him or you loathe him. Um I do think people deserve a second chance and he has owned up to the mistake that he's made. Um, I think often people maybe make mistakes they don't own them and and he has. Um but pundit as well, like I think when you're selling newspapers and and these times it's it's so difficult to sell newspapers somebody like this has had a track record of actually gaining traction for your newspaper, whether that's good or bad. And um, that's another another conversation another day. But certainly he creates um, attraction. We're talking about him. People talk about him and people will read his columns. He writes good columns. He has you know, there's there's good stories and what he's saying in his columns. He the I, I enjoy the piece that what David Walsh did with him. I found it, you know, interesting, quite funny as well. The thing I was looking for, though, was the Marcus Smithins and I thought that might have been earlier on in the piece. Yeah, um, I appreciate maybe that that wasn't. And absolutely, I would have liked to see more challenging other things that he has said. But I, he also strikes in the character, I don't know him at all, but I think he kind of says things before he actually thinks. So in the podcast, when we're talking here now, you actually just think without saying it in, a, in a newspaper column, and you're writing, you have time to think. And when you read things a few times, sometimes they don't come across the way that you should that they're supposed to be intended. And I think that's a big thing as well for him. That when he actually speaks, he doesn't actually think. I think of through what he's going to say. Um, but yeah, I think punditry. It's you know if if they're looking for someone to talk about him, if they want someone to actually look at a, a lot of nostalgia as well, and kind of you know, he's not afraid to say things as he feels whether you agree with him or not. I think that's one of the reasons why he's back yeah, as well. well. I, I,
1: isn't and that's maybe the point you raised, Kieran which, you know, 30 years on, where is the next Neil Francis, you asked. I suppose 30 years on, the landscape has changed that uh, Neil Francis is probably even, you know, in his in his um, willingness to say things which will get him into hot water and to say exactly what he thinks about all sorts of things. He's arguably a rarer commodity now than he was 30 year- years ago, such as the a uh, general softening in uh, punditry and public discourse generally, I would put it to you. Yeah, no,
0: I think it's a reflection of professional here, of that um, you know, interviews have become more sanitized. Like you look at, you'll see a lot of interviews in advance of Six Nations, and ninety-nine percent of them will be completely disposable. You know, there'd just be nothing in, it'd just be filling space, filling time, and you know, um, you do see people like Willie Anderson's book and see, you know, that was a different generation. How fascinating that was. Keith Earls' book was fascinating too, and he's a current player. But I've always found out with Keith. Harold said he stood out like he, from when he first came into the Ireland team in terms of his interviews that they were they were they were just a bit more free spirited and uh, you know he wasn't towing he was he was himself he wasn't really towing party lines or throwing out prepared lines or whatever you know it's a shame of rugby you lose that because you have a lot of very bright people come through it um through the professional setup and I'd like to just see them some of them open up more and you would like new voices, you know, like Neil Francis has, as I said, he's done brilliant work over the years, but you'd like a new Neil Francis to emerge.
1: See, I think there are new voices. It's just a very different style, like somebody like Gordon Darcy, for instance, in The Irish Times writes b- brilliant columns, uh, you know, he teases the game apart and the tactics and, and gives forthright views on the game. But it's 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 not in the style of controversy.
0: No, but he has a Maverick streak as well you know like he's you know Gordon Darcy we talked to you at T Atlanta about his interest in Buddhism for example you know like he's a, he's interested in he's a very broad view of the world and I think that does help that though know, some of the new funded some are really good now like I find Andrew Trimble interesting to listen to mm-hmm. you know you you know uh, you Brian obviously Ronald O'gara very very interesting but um there's some of them just get too technical. I think in the way they talk about the game and they forget that to many people rugby is a relatively used sport and they don't really want to be bombarded with the technical stuff that's more at home with the coaching conference. And I think uh, Neil Francis is quite good at getting that balance right and that he gives information and ana- proper analysis, but he's also an entertaining writer and he's, uh, you know, he throws in, uh, you know, anecdotes and references like today he's writing about uh, dick fosbury of the fosbury flop who introduced that as a, a high jumping technique and how that caught on and, you know but he ties that into the way into his preview, of the six nations and that there's just not as many many pundits thinking more about i think it is sorry not as many rugby columnists thinking of the reader and how to engage them they're just kind of thinking of people they know that are fascinated by rugby what they want to hear. And mm. I think they're not thinking of the general audience.
1: Anymore. I guess that's one of the reasons uh, Neil France is still very much in demand and is back writing again six months on from the Sunday independence situation. gronya on the Six Nations generally, there are tens of thousands of words uh, written across the Sunday papers ahead of weekend one of the Six Nations. What took your fancy or did anything?
2: There was a few. Um, I'm trying to think where they are. I mean, we'll talk about one, I suppose maybe just to talk about the one if I'm sticking with the Sunday Times and we'll move on then to the Indo and the Daily Mail. But you know, there's so much talk about um the Six Nations. But one that caught my eye was a game by David Waltz that rugby can't go on like this. And it's just talking about concussion. It's just interesting when you started off with Manny at the start of the show talking about this, like this is another um big talking point once more about it and the players that are obviously um, early stage dementia and other players that are taking cases, like um, cases against um, lawsuits, I should say about this. So there's 160 rugby union players and 75 rugby league players have joined a lawsuit, taking against the games' respective governing bodies, claiming the authorities could have done more to protect them from brain damage. And the big majority of these players are in their 30s and their 40s. So that's really frightening. I thought when you're in your 30s and your 40s, because we're seeing players now that are retiring early 30s, and yet some of them obviously um, are starting to have, have dementia, or some of them um, have had that over the number of years. And he just spoke uh, talks about um, a, a Tim Carley, 43s, among the 160 former union players. And he had a conversation with a neurologist who's examined his brain two, month, two months before. A Kiwi, Carley spent four years with Cornish Pirates in the English Championship and a further three seasons with Bourgeois in the French Top 14. Over the course of his career, he suffered multiple concussions and he has yet to find out does he have uh, early dementia because he doesn't want to have that conversation but is saying he has to but he gives the example of Sam Underhill who's 25 and and one of today's players and also one of the England stars that have reached the 2019 World Cup final Mm. and his problem is concussion and they're just talking about You know, he's been extremely impressive for Bath. Um, he had 23 tackles before a knock on the head that caused him to lose concussion. That was in September 2017. Two months later, he's playing for England against Australia. He suffers another concussion. And on return in early 2018, he spoke of the need to improve his tackle technique and make better decisions in the collision areas. So basically he's suffering from concussion and you kind of have to ask the question, and David Walsh does ask the question, of what of the concerns for Andre Hill himself. He he keeps trying to come back, he keeps coming back, but he suffers from concussion. And you're saying how many concussions is too many concussions. And you're at this point saying like clubs and rugby unions will possibly will have to step in and go, well, as duty of care here, if some of your players are constantly getting concussed and we're seeing the evidence now from players that have played and that are in their 30s and their 40s that are suffering from this, there needs to be a very, um, I think, serious decision made about his future and other players like him that are suffering continuous concussions because the medical evidence is showing that that is it's a massive, massive problem. And I think clubs have a massive duty of care to players here. So it's just talking with different players, you know, Sam Warburton in his book as well. I found a really good article um, just talking about his concussion and how you know when george north came in and he said he got hit in the head and for half a second i didn't know where i was or which day i was supposed to be playing um and this was against the all blacks in 2014 and um sam warburton and um and dan idiot just kind of laughed and they just said mate that happens just literally every game and you're going gosh like so how many players have played through this we're obviously knowing a lot more about concussion there's more protocols and more safeguards involved in it but i just think it's a very interesting to keep an eye on this because we're having a six nations competition now and it's massive hope. We're all really excited about this because the start of spring is the start of, of seeing crowds back here in Ireland and we're all very hopeful and we love watching the six nations, but just for some players as well, it's um it's going to be a difficult time and, and concussion is something obviously that's, that's huge. Dylan Hartley comes in as well and mm. um, talking about that too. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's just, I found a very interesting article, Joe.
1: Yeah, you've summed it up brilliantly as well. That's um, I mean, when he goes through Underhill, for instance, it really catches you because he's still just 25. And in the context of what the generation before him have gone through, you can't help but be slightly concerned on Underhill's behalf. And uh, Walsh does conclude the piece by talking now about how the concussion protocols have changed and in particular, the gap you have to take between returning to play or not to play, and it's down to a week now. many instances and uh, Walt says even rugby's own people don't believe in the current return to play protocols so he quotes here Dr Ken Quarry who's a chief scientist with New Zealand Rugby he said if it was up to me players who've been concussed would not be able to return to play for at least a couple of weeks preferably longer and yet we do see some play return within a week and he gives an example of that in the piece as well. In last June, Luke Canty was knocked out playing for Exeter in the Premiership final. Following weekend, he played for the British and Irish Lions in South Africa. So, yeah, rugby can't go on like this. Is the headline. Uh, the problem is, Ciaran, uh, taking the physicality out of rugby is a fool's errand.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me of an, uh, an article, uh, a column done in the Examiner a few years ago, and it was very striking because he got he went through the numbers with all the provinces for the start of the club season. And he looked at how many players that were missing th- through injury for the start of the season. This was just after pre-season, after contact and training, whatever. And a lot of the uh, provinces were missing players in double figures, you know, 13, 14 players. And this was at the very start of the season. And it showed the incredible physical toll it's taking. And uh, You know, it, you know, with the line has been used so often. These players are the guinea pigs. You know, the, the the players in the last 10, 15 years professionally are the guinea pigs because nobody really knows what impact it's going to have on this generation and the next generation until way down the road. Like I could have serious health repercussions for them. And, you know, I know a couple of Gaelic footballers, inter-county players, I won't say their names, but who had bad concussions and they're still playing for their counties. And I don't think they've ever been the same. I don't think they've ever reached anything like the same level. And I think people can underestimate the impact like it's a brain injury Now concussion is very it's a very uh, soft way of describing it you know it kind of sweetens what it is but a brain injury is serious and you know you're ha- you're seeing them week on week on week particularly in the six nations is so attrition
2: hmm.
0: you know it's uh, you know there's so many games usually physical games in a short space of time that it takes a massive toll and I think down the road we might be questioning that toll a lot
1: yeah I must say, increasingly when you watch matches, it's hard not to have that in the back of your head, which uh, certainly undercuts them slightly. Was there any other Six Nations coverage you felt was worthy of a mention, Kieran, or yeah, you wanted to touch tight,
0: on? A tight furlong interview by uh, Stephen Jones the Sunday Times is good because there's just a few things I never really, uh, I didn't realise this, that uh, in professional rugby, you know, out halves are, are the best paid, which you would expect. But tight head props are next on the list. Oh yeah. For the two best positions. And I knew tight head is you know, such a specialist position. It's such a difficult it's just so hard to get top quality people uh in that position. But I didn't realise it was at that level in terms of salaries because often the, the, the money situation rugby is kind of it's not highlighted that much. Like compared to soccer, everybody knows of Mo Sala earns it, for example, or Jaden Sancho, like people talk about these things all the time and they don't talk about it as much with rugby but like a lot of this stuff in the type for long interview would be familiar to us because we know about his background at uh, Wexford farm and he's a GA background, but you no, know, this was Stephen Jones for an audience in Britain as well. And there's just a, it's just a nice interview. Like, you know, it gives you a flavor of what type for is like and how he's made himself into, uh, into a serious force, like into a world-class prop. But, you know, he, he just like, he became a kind of a cliche to credit GA with helping Irish rugby players, but you know he, he he does highlights the way it helped him and that the GA is more like football. It's a three hundred and sixty degree game of movement at space. And I think growing up from that perspective, it gave me the hand-eye coordination bit. And we do see that with the way he plays. You know that he, he is very soft hands, a tight head prop, and you know he's he's nifty on his feet as well. So. Um, but, you know, there's a few funny things, like you talked about when he went up to Dublin, you know, and, you know, you have a bit of a chip on your shoulder at the Purple Farm in Wexford. You're going in with the, the guys from, uh, you know, private schools in Dublin. But he, you know, he did say, you know, he said he felt so out of place that on his first night he would ring his mother to ask her how to cook boil-in-the-bag rice, um, you know, uh, which is uh, probably the simplest thing you could cook outside a toast, I would think. Hmm.
1: You know? We've all been there. Uh, Yeah, it's a it's an I enjoyed it. It's just it it really did feel like it was very much for a British audience. And so it's kind of it's curious to read it from an Irish perspective, even like the Sunday Times laying out the championship head, all the TV schedules. It's just BBC and ITV, you know, so it kind of you can feel like you're looking in. A little bit, you know. I put it to Furlong that his beloved hurling is complicated and confusing, you know. <laughs> so it's very much aimed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At a That's funny, uh, uh, The other
0: thing that struck me, Joe, is there's a lot about Hurling, You know, there's a fair amount of reference to hurling, but the clips we've seen of Furlong yeah. like, over the years are playing like football. Like yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think he was more a footballer than a from what I remember. But I'm open to correction on that.
1: What comes across, uh, more than anything, is I mean, we all love Tyke Furlong, and this is definitely one of the better interviews. Stephen Jones comes away utterly in love with Tyke Furlong. So he finishes off by saying, as we parted after some of the most pleasurable time I can remember, is how he... He's yeah, just uh,
0: trying to make up for all the people who say hey sir." Yeah, sorry, 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 yeah gosh, well... Sorry. They're all like Tyke Furlong. He loves it.
2: But was really lovely, Joe, as well. He's so proud of where he comes from. And he always says in every interview, he's always talking about his farming background, his parents of the GAA. But what I really like as well is that he's very aware of his value. And you know, for the for that young man that went up with a little chip on his shoulder, and they, you know, and I like that quote as well, talking about your massive chip on your shoulder. There, growing up, I would always think that they were silver, that they were silver spoons, very privileged, looked down on us, and that's something that definitely drove me on as a young lad. So he might have ended up thinking, "Gosh, they may be better than me, or I'm not a good there." But certainly, he has realised. His true value and potential, and to this Irish setup and to Leinster, and the fact that he kind of held off in negotiations as a contract and, and stuff, really show that. So it was a really enjoyable interview, and he comes across exactly how as he appears on screen as well, like just very enjoyable, really, um, just just really relaxed individual, and, and uh, I say great company.
1: Yeah, he's top of the heap now, that's for sure. Uh, interestingly, by the way, uh, Stephen Jones, who has seen it all really in the game of rugby says that Furlong is one of the finest props in the sport. For me, conceivably the greatest I have seen. So that is high praise indeed. Uh, we'll take uh, a moment to check in at St Conleth's Park. Killian Whelan is watching Kildare against Kerry. How are we looking, Killian?
3: Good afternoon to you, Joe. Uh, right, uh, favourable to favour about this game, Joe. As you can imagine, take the Park back to the rafters here. It's a bit like the newbies are nowhere atmosphere. And Kildare, well, they're within touching distance. 166, to are on the difference after five minutes. Bit of a disputed one. I'd love to see it back. Gavin who's subsequently gone off injured in the last couple of moments with Amanda made a marauding run down into the dressing room entrance here of St. Connors Park. The ball was recycled and it finished with Killian Splat, not really making a great connection with the ball at all, but somehow it got underneath Mark Donnan's legs and into the back of the net. That has been the different topic It's been Sean O'Shea, a couple of points from a freeze and uh, also from play, Paddy Clifford has chipped in. David Clifford probably with the score of the game so far with a lovely one off his left. And even Thomas Sullivan has got forward to kick scores. Jimmy Highland is the man that's keeping uh, the scenario for Kildare in touch there. They had started out of the blocks like, a, a, like a, an Olympic sprinter with uh, Paul Cribben and Kevin Flynn getting scores in the opening three minutes. But since then, Kerry got the goal. They've built on that and the lead here by to six with a half an hour gone, Joe.
1: Very good. Kitty Whelan, thank you from St. Connets Park. Uh, updates throughout the afternoon on the GAA action. We'll take a very short break. Final uh, thoughts on the Sunday papers next. Now, you're very welcome back. So we're going through the Sunday papers here in the company of Grania McIlwain and Karen Cunningham. Uh, loads to try and get through. I know you've picked out a bunch of other GAA pieces, which we'll try and hit before we uh, finish up. A few other ones which caught both your eyes. So uh, Dennis Walsh on Saudi sports washing, which is a routine... A discussion point, I would think, here in the Sunday Papers and beyond. Uh, The golfers are heading to Saudi Arabia next weekend, and that's been the subject of much discussion over the last couple of weeks. And Dennis Walsh uh, starts off by making some uh, wider points. Desert Storms is the headline of the piece. Critics of Saudi sports washing are right, but why are golfers taking most of the heat? And so, for instance, he talks about a recent trade mission In uh, November recently, Leo Varadkar and uh, 60 Irish companies spent two days in Saudi Arabia and uh, the LGBTQ abuses and human rights issues were discussed and they never threatened to remotely uh, derail the mission in any great way. The role of Enterprise Ireland is to grow exports and sustain jobs is uh, what was said at the time. He mentions as well, Dennis Walsh, the 20 million dollar Saudi Cup, which will be uh, the centerpiece of racing in the Middle East. Very shortly, 80 overseas entries are expected, including horses trained in the UK, the US, France, Japan and Ireland. Willie Mullins, Jessica Harrington all had runners last year. Joseph O'Brien sent horses a year before. Uh, He says, though, racing is just happy in its own world and consumed with itself and doesn't uh, get much criticism in the same way that the Formula One does, the boxing does, the golf does. And he talks to uh, Tom Ryan, a Tipperary native who works for the Saudi Jockey Club, who... Uh, Makes the point, not long after he arrived, the first uh, woman was employed by the jockey club. Now, he says women make up 70 percent of people he works with. A couple of aspiring women jockeys have applied for a license. Dennis as well in this piece talks about how there was a Formula E event four years ago and alongside the race was the first ever concert where women and men could both attend and mingle freely. Uh, 2018, women given the right to drive and Dennis uh, points out at the same time, a lot of the women who broke the rules when it was against the law are still in prison. But the rule has changed. Um, On the Formula One track, he cites a piece from Rebecca Clancy who spoke to local women who were glad the circus had come to town, not just for the work it gave them, but for the spotlight it brought. The point of sports washing was to persuade the world to see the kingdom differently. To that end, they need to give the world something different to see. So there's a sense that maybe Saudi Arabia is inching towards more Uh, desirable societal norms while still being behind though Um, and Dennis finishes his piece by saying the uncomfortable stuff has been compartmentalised uh, for the golfers and for the Irish trade mission he uh, says that there have been scathing pieces written about uh, the golfers in recent times, he cites one from uh, the Washington Post which excoriated the golfers who'd chosen to play in the Saudi International, described the appearance fees and prize pot as blood money Uh, Obviously, he would have been a colleague of Jamal Khashoggi, who was uh, killed so brutally. And uh, Dennis concludes by saying sports washing can never take that away. And I know a couple of the golf journalists, Eamon Lynch, for instance, is uh, referring to the Saudi international next week as the bone saw international. Obviously, a reference to the brutal nature of uh, Khashoggi's uh, murder. Uh, Kieran. I know you, you wrote a critical piece of uh, Shane Larry. We've been critical of Shane Larry here on the Sunday pay-per-view last week and on the Golf Weekly podcast on the back of his comments where he said, look, I'm a politician and I have to provide for my uh, family. Uh, Dennis here taking uh, a wider view of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. It is beyond uh, golf, obviously, and it goes to governmental level and to various other sports. The The golfers, though, Uh, have taken a lot of the ire and have caught the public imagination on this front? Yeah, well, uh, uh,
0: like there's definitely a a level, I don't know if you call it double standards or hypocrisy, you could call it that that if you want, in that you know, uh, as a state, Ireland deals with Saudi Arabia all the time and so many Irish companies do and that's the case with the UK, with the US, etc. You know, it's a case across the board that it's a hugely important trade partner. But... I think the golf situation is very different to say formula one, you know, so when you have, uh, like if you, if you, if you take a stand on the Saudi Arabia Grand Prix and you say, you're not going to go to Saudi Arabia effectively, you have to pull out of the driver's challenge. You know, you can't really absolutely pull out of one Grand Prix, and, you know, you're gone otherwise, you know, but the golfers have made a choice. So say for example, Roy McIlroy has chosen not to go hmm. Shane Larry and a lot of others have chosen to go. And ultimately, it comes down to money. And I like, I find that piece hard to write because it, I admire Shane Lowry greatly. And I would say, in my memory, Shane Lowry, Katie Taylor, Paul McGrath are probably the three most universally admired Irish sports people. You know, some others are a bit divisive. But you find it very hard to find anybody with a bad word to say about those three. And strangely enough, this could have been an issue for Katie Taylor as well, and it could be in the future. Because if Anthony Joshua v Tyson Fury does go ahead there's a fair chance it will happen in Saudi Arabia. And if, if it does, I would say, uh, if the fight does happen, I would say there's a very good chance TV Taylor will be in the undercard. So she would have to face questions about that as well. And you know, and I do accept a lot of arguments Dennis is making, but there's still huge issues with that country. You know, the Jamal Khashoggi uh, situation in particular was an a- absolute scandal, you know, what, what was done to that journalist. And, um, I don't know. The argument didn't stand up to be Shane Lowry and basically saying, I, you know, I've defeated my family, to paraphrase him. You know, and he's one of the wealthiest Irish sports people of all time, and given the nature of golf, he'd probably earned serious money for another 20 years if he stays in good enough health. So, I think people are looking for an out in a way. You know, they don't want to criticise Shane Lowry. You know, racing definitely has been bad with the Saudis for a long, long time, but there's a lot of stuff around racing that should be questioned more anyway, but uh, the, the big issue with it, uh, Joe, is it's a deliberate policy that is the Saudi state. Sports washing is a policy. No, they've embraced sport across the board, and it's spent throwing so much money at different sports because they want to launder the reputation through the sport. You know, you can't get away from that. That's yeah. the reason they're doing it. It's not due to a great love of golf or Formula One or athletics or whatever. It's wanting to clean the right. reputation.
1: And, and sport is a great way of doing it yeah it sure is uh Grania, sorry i hate to do this live on air you might try and turn down your uh, speakers on your laptop just as obviously we, you need to be able to hear us but just i think we're getting a lot of feedback your mic's picking up the sound and it's uh going round and round and um we're uh we're <laughs> probably driving people to distractions so uh, if you can that'd be great apologies to to try and fix that live on air but we're just having a few situations, what do you make of the Saudi situation? Then the golfers are going someone like Shane Larry, you know, saying I'm not a politician, I've got to provide for my family. Others are taking more of a stand. I mean, I like Paul Casey a year ago or two years ago said, call me a hypocrite if I ever go there and you know what they've done in Yemen and the human rights record and uh, lo and behold, he's very much there now and uh, going. So we've had the full spectrum. Yeah, it's it's
2: a difficult one because it is about the money. It's all about the money, um, and it's a it, it is a dilemma as well. And I think we all like Shane Lowry so much, and he's such a really lovely guy. And and
1: you know, there's a lot of other
2: golfers that are doing it beyond just Shane Lowry heading over there to play golf. So, but I think from an Irish perspective. You know, are you know, are we expecting him to be this perfect role model as well? I think there's questions, in all of us like, well, what do we want him to do either? Like, you know, and I think genuinely, probably he's being honest when he says, you know, um, I'm not a politician, I'm a golfer, and this is a pro- this is a professional place that I'm going to go and play golf in. You know, but most just, of us we- don't like it because of everything that's all around it. Yeah, and, and the I suppose the
1: the the response to that would be, you don't need to be a professional politician, on Shane's part, to understand why. Uh, This is a really questionable decision to make. You don't need to be a golfer or sorry, a a politician. You can just be citizen of the world, I suppose, taking a a fairly superficial interest in what's going on. Uh, This is not like HSBC sponsored tournament in Saudi Arabia. It's very much Uh, from the PIF and, uh, you know, the murder of Khashoggi, just one of the many accusations hanging over these very same people that you're taking money from. So, you know, to say I'm not a politician, that's fine. I don't know if you need professional politicking to understand why going there is, uh, like I said, really questionable. And the other thing I suppose is, yes, everyone has to provide for their families. But, uh, you know, Shane's won 20 million prize money and there is a tournament on at uh, pebble beach that same weekend on the pga tour where the first prize is over a million dollars and the uh, full purse is a seven million dollar prize fund so there are you know there are readily available options here to dodge this one which is kind of the frustration i think and that's why maybe just saying well i have to provide for my family and i'm not a politician almost actually i think he was trying to be honest to his credit but actually it 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 almost put his head above the parapet more than a few others
2: yeah it's it's I mean, we we all know what's right, Joe, and We all know what's wrong. Like we we do as as adults, we do know what's right and we know what's wrong. And obviously, this is something he's discussed with his family. He's obviously aware of everything that's happened. He's a well-read person, um, and this is a decision that he made to do that. Um, you know, Roy McElroy didn't. Can you argue? Well, Roy McIlroy is in the top ten. You know, he doesn't need to go there. He has a lot more financial money. I'm just throwing this out as devil's advocate appreciate the amount of money that they're all on is huge um but it's a decision he's made now and and he's going to be there but um yeah it is questionable it, it is a difficult it's a, it's a state that's looking to actually be considered legitimate and by you actually going around and just saying yeah and, and participating in these events it is a moral dilemma for each of these golfers that are involved in doing it but it, it seems by playing there they've made that decision for themselves and I think probably money is the reason why they're going there. It has, it is the reason why they're going there. There's massive amounts of money there, and they just feel, yeah, if I can go here, do successfully here, that sets me up really, really nicely.
1: Kieran uh, Declan McBennett, head of RT Sport, interviewed in the Mail on Sunday by Mark Gallagher. Watch him. to you hear. Uh Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, I find this interesting. Like, um, like Grania, I'm sure Grania knows Declan as well. Like I know Declan, so you know I have to compare that. I like Declan. I wouldn't say we're friends, but like I've interviewed him a couple of times and uh, you know, was in a panel on the, on the RT Sports Board the last few years. And I just find that it interesting because he doesn't give that many interviews, but he's somebody that's talked about a huge amount because so many people have an opinion about um, RTE Sports. And I think a lot of the criticism he gets is unfair. because I think a lot of people don't recognize the reality uh, I have to find it. Oh yeah, find it now. Yeah. Uh, The reality of what RT is, like RT is not a sports channel. For example, League of Ireland fans would be very critical, in particular, of uh, the, the amount of games that are covered there. But if you look at domestic leagues around the world, how many are actually shown on, a, you know, a state channel that isn't a sports channel? You know, like it's a, the, so it's a very different. It's very—it's very hard to please everybody. Like boxing fans want more boxing, athletics fans want more athletics. Even people think there's a huge amount of GA, but GA fans want an extra highlight program on Monday, and they want a magazine program midweek. That you cannot please everybody, especially when budgets have been slashed across the board in RT as they have, and especially as rights issues are so uh, competitive now. So it, it just gives the—you uh, know it just—he uh, makes a point here there's plenty of noise. The two most common complaints that McBennett's hears is, why aren't you showing more of the sport I like? And why do you have such and such in the telly? They don't know what they're talking about. And no matter what he does, you will get those two questions. That's the bottom line. Like, like you, I know Ryle Nugent pretty well, his predecessor. And Ryle would be dismissed by some GA or soccer fans as a rugby man. But as Ryle points out, he lost a lot of rugby rights on the watch. Mm. You know, it doesn't come down to what People say, McBennett's it's a GA man, but like there's been more, uh, you know, the spread of sports now on RT is probably greater than it ever has been. Like even though League of Ireland fans are so critical, there's more soccer in RT now than there ever has been before. Because they show women's international, show uh, underage internationals, there's more European games, uh, international football games, etc. So I think it's one of the most difficult jobs in Irish sport and this interview gives an insight into how hard it is.
1: OK, well, that's on page 66, 67 the Mail on Sunday. I'm going to keep things moving before time really comes against us. Grania, I know you wanted to mention Ash Barty. Nadal, by the way, has won his 21st Grand Slam title uh, just in the last uh, 20 minutes or so in Melbourne. Ash Barty bridged a huge gap for the home crowd yesterday. Page 15 of the Sunday Times caught you, right? Yeah, it did,
2: actually, Joe. And do you know what? I it caught my eye on a number of things. I'm just getting it here now. Um basically because the Australian Open it started off terribly and that all the shadow of Novak Djokovic and that's all we were talking about that you were kind of afraid that that would totally overcast everything on on the Australian Open and we've had really good feel good stories in the Australian Open, but Nadal winning is huge those that don't like Novak Djokovic will be thrilled that he's the person that has got the 21st Grand Slam title and not and not Djokovic but what I loved about um Barry and I thought it was really nice it was a really um lovely news story but the fact the fact that um, Yvonne Gulligan-Cawley presented the cup to her and that has been her idol and considered her friend. And of course, Yvonne Gulligan-Cawley is seven time Grand Slam singles cha- champion and a huge, huge sporting icon in Australia. And um, so that I thought that was lovely. And just the pressure that she would have been under coming into that game. I mean, they, they increased the number of fans able to in and watch that. And even before the match is quoted here by Stuart Fraser. Um, Barty received a standing ovation from 12,000 spectators as she walked onto the court you had like Kathy Freeman and Ian Thorpe who were two major superstars obviously in Australia as well and they're present in the audience so for someone to actually have done that and and that pressure around her um, is huge and 44 years since the last time an Australian um, person won that but also as a co like she's won the French Open in 2019 and Wimbledon last year she joined Serena Williams, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal And Djokovic is the only active players across the men's and women's tours to have won major trophies in all three surfaces of hard grass and clay. So I just thought it was lovely. She's only 25 as well. So it's just a really lovely news story um, from her and well done on on achieving that.
1: Yeah, third Grand Slam. So she'll be going for the career Grand Slam at the US Open. Uh, there's uh, lots of GAA to finish up on then. We touched on some of it at the start, obviously, Dublin Armagh. Uh, there's a full spectrum of things. Michael Dignan, for instance, uh, stay positive or uh, how else how do you stay going? So he's taking a more philosophical look at the return of sports. And he's from the community, which is uh, in particular mourning Ashleen Murphy and Tullamore and he starts off his piece writing about her and talked about the outpouring of grief in the country. And he was at the vigil and uh, his uh, sons went to the school where she uh, taught once upon a time. And he, he says, I have to say, the week after her death was one of the toughest I've ever put down. And he also adds that his father lived a great life but died during COVID. We didn't get to give him a traditional send off to celebrate his life. All of these things are going on in the background of people's lives. I run my own business, chair the county board. You try and stay busy. And so um, something like sport coming back, obviously, is a welcome distraction for lots of people. So that's Michael Dignan in the mail on Sunday, for instance. There's an interview with Carl McShane and he's reliving, I suppose, the Injury and his comeback, and the effect he had in the championship. Colin O'Rourke is talking about the importance of the league. Uh, Dermot crow goes to Ushin Mullen's local town and talks to people there about the well, I the, had the, what seemed like almost the sense of um tragedy when he was leaving for Australia and, and the happiness that he's staying on. So there's a kind of full spectrum of GA pieces. I don't know, Kieran, which one you wanted to mention. Yeah, uh, I'll mention
0: that the uh, Dermot Crowe's uh, piece on Oshin Mullen because um. I think when he decided to stay here, like, this, uh, you know, Geelong were very keen on him. It was made clear for a couple of years, they were very keen on him. but It looks like he was done. and think like, his guys have been twi- one young football of the year twice in a row. And, like, he's such a huge talent and he was such a loss to Mayo. And just, uh, you know, the kind of, what so many people thought when he decided, he did the U-turn decided to stay here, he's down to Mayo and wanted to give it a shot with Mayo. But it, it just highlights the importance of the club and it reminded me of Michael Murphy, like because uh, Kilmaine would be Glen Swilly would be kind of similar to Kilmaine uh, back in the day, and that there were a club that were barely talked about in Donegal, like Neil galler firstly, and then particularly Michael Murphy came along, and they made them into you know uh, uh, Division One teams who'd end up winning county titles and you know very strong clubs and. Uh, but, like, the love basically, you know, this comes down to his love of club and his love of the place and how important the Mullen family have been. You know, himself and his brothers have been to that team. And I think the draw of home could be underestimated, even because it reminds me, like, people forget now when Michael Murphy was 17 or 18, like, there was huge attraction, a uh, huge interest in him from Aussie Rose Scouts. A lot of people thought he would go, but he's just such a homebird. He wanted to stay home. But it wasn't just on a goal, it was Ben Swilling. And I see a bit of that uh, with, uh, Oshin Mullen, like it just, and Mayo owe on in the background, and Duny wouldn't make three points, something to do with Oshin Mullen today. Like he's he's, um, he's, a real talent. I'm glad he's staying for wrong sake, because I have no interest in Aussie rules, and I want to see him play play <laughs> off.
1: Yeah, I think it was a good idea to go to the local town and talk to people, you know, you get stuff like, oh, he worked in the local centre, and he, great way with customers, always smiling. So you get all these local people who've known him all the way through. G a GAPC, you wanted to mention?
2: Yeah, just just briefly that and the Cal McShane piece. I just I just think I thought it was a lovely way the article was done by Dermot Crowe, and that you went and talked to the local people about him and and those that knew him. I thought it was really really lovely. Um, But also you get a sense of the amount of work the players put in. Like he was just there's like 2019, he basically went to the gym and developed himself. This comes from um, you know cousins of his is John by Michael John Mullen and Ollie Walsh in the piece, and they just talk about the work that he's transferred himself physically to get to where he is now. So there's a a lot of kind of loneliness and and work ethic that has to go in to be the best at what what you do. And that kind of was the theme in the Cahill McShane piece as well. Like he suffered real injuries and obviously with Aussie Rules came back and didn't realise his granny was from Tory Island that I didn't realise that. Um, So a a Donegal um, granny so basically, he again, when he stopped, he shattered his ankle. And I think he did that up in Chum actually, um, playing against Galway. And I think I actually might have been covering that game for RT that day. But what it showed here is that the amount of work that he had to do, and he was really honest about the work, Joe. Like the loneliness nearly swallowed him up. I remember days going in, just a couple of minutes, being in there thinking, right, this isn't working today, he says. Back home, you go in the car, 5 minutes journey, which seems like a half an hour. And he just talked about visual, visualisation and he visualised going to be in Crow Park in the All-Ireland Final. I visualised all that. I've seen myself making an impact in games. That definitely helped me through those days in the gym. I really believe good things will come if you believe and work hard. That's what made that final win, that extra bit special. So it was just a really nice interview um, from Michael Foley, just getting a sense of Cahill of McShane, who he is and the injury and, and the work that he's gone through to get to back to where he is um, as a footballer as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, guys, great stuff. Appreciate that. Grania Wayne, broadcaster with T G Car, RTE, Sky Sports, thank you. And Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star. Thanks so much. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Joe.
0: Thanks, Grania.